It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Kian McLaughlin. Kian is the founder and CEO of Trinity Perspectives, a sales consultancy based in Sydney, Australia, one of the latest guests we've had from Sydney, as well as author of a great new book called Rebirth of the Salesman. So, Kian, welcome to Accelerate. Hi, Andy. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, my pleasure. So, take a minute, maybe introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, maybe how'd you get your start in, in sales and also how'd you find your way to Australia? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm actually Irish and spent, um, most of my formative years in Ireland, um, and then did what a lot of Irish people do when they finish university, jumped on a plane and came to Australia to see a little bit of the world as a backpacker and met a girl and stayed and married and have been here for almost 20 years. Um, so yeah, it's funny the way, funny the ways these things happen. Um, in terms of how I got my start in sales, I think probably like so many other people, I had no plan to pursue a career in sales, um, didn't set out to do that, but ended up almost by accident um, taking a role in a, in a software company. And 15 years later, um, I had sort of moved through the ranks of a number of different software companies and um, always carrying a quota, always either working with channels or direct sales. And yeah, it's just been a sort of an interesting evolution over that period of time. And then about five years ago, I stepped out to um, establish Trinity. Um, and we were in the sales consulting and advisory area, but we are probably in a bit of a niche um, element of, of the, the industry. We focus on uh, win-loss analysis and sales transformation. So really helping organizations better understand why they're winning and losing the deals they pitch for, and then taking those learnings and insights and kind of reverse engineering them back into their sales process. Well, that's a concept that's really at the heart of your book, is the win-loss review. Um, and it's just, you know, companies really talk primarily about doing lost deal reviews, uh, but you say there's really more value in, in doing the win review than doing the lost well, review. So why is that? Well, it's, it's interesting. So I think there's huge value in both. Um, but I think uh, you, you're right. Traditionally, if there are reviews done at all, and unfortunately, they're not done very frequently or very consistently by most companies, but when they do do them, they have a tendency to focus on the losses because they probably for a couple of reasons, they think there's more to learn from the losses. And also they assume if there's been a, a deal they've won, that they've done a great job. And so, so therefore, you know, let's go drink a, instead of it, exactly. analyzing why we won, right? Yeah, let's clap each other on the back and, and then move on to the next one. But what we've been finding is that um, the reasons that we win versus the reasons that we think we win are often very, very different. Um, and one of the most interesting parts of my week on any given working week is when I talk to a sales rep after I've reviewed one of their deals, particularly a winning deal, and I'll say to them, you know, tell me the top two or three reasons you think you won this deal, and they'll, they'll list them off, and often they'll say, well, I think we definitely won on price, and our product was a stronger fit, and I think we won based on the quality of our references. And then I can respond and say it was none of those things. It was you you won based on risk mitigation, you won based on the fact that one of the people they spoke to who wasn't a reference of yours but was a peer of theirs gave a very, very strong reference, and you won based on cultural fit. And by the way, you were the most expensive solution. And and they're floored because they've had all of these assumptions based on based on the interactions they've had with a client or based on their own uh, internal biases. 
And the, the, the tricky thing is if we go away without understanding the detail, then what happens is we actually start to make decisions about, you know, future aspects of our business, of our sales process, of our pricing strategy or our competitive strategy with, uh, based on false assumptions. And, and this is happening all the time in our industry. So it's, a, it's quite a niche area, but it's a very interesting area to play at the sort of the intersection of the sales process and the buying process. Yeah, well, I think one of the key points you had in the chapter was that, you know, through doing the win-loss or the win review, excuse me, is uh, you're talking about how the customer highlighted areas in which you had excelled, but they singled out one specific area as key to their decision. And this, to me, is the thing that, that's really critical about doing the win analysis because it's those single things, especially in large, complex deals, it's those single things that no one ever really pays attention to. You said they don't understand that, and that's the key to winning the next deal that's similar and the deal after that and the deal after that is really understanding why they made the decision. Exactly. That, and do you know what? There's, there's an even more fundamental um, issue here, which is if you've done a decent job as a salesperson, you've earned the right to this feedback, in my opinion. And actually, not just in my opinion, but in, in the opinion of the vast majority of customers, they're very happy to share it with you. So if you put a little bit of structure around it, you ask for it in the right way, you explain to them, look, this is what we're going to do with the feedback. We're going to use it internally to develop our salespeople to focus on getting better from a demo perspective, pricing, whatever it might be. But equally, this is what we're not going to do. We're not going to use it to beat up on our sales team if we've done something wrong or our pre-sales people. We're not going to use it to try and get back into the deal via the back door if we've lost a piece of business. This is very much about us just improving and delivering a better service to you in the future and to all clients in the future. We're leaving these nuggets of gold on the table time and time again. And I just think it's a missed opportunity, particularly when it's so hard to find a really, really good um, piece of business to go after. It's The market is becoming more competitive. Um, It behoves us to to do these little things which can you know can give us a, a, a strategic advantage. Well, I think again, just to reiterate a point I've made is is in the complex enterprise sale is and I've given this example in on the show before is you know you may have a deal that you've been working for years. I mean I worked in that type of environment I worked on deals for two, three years, you get to the end and part of the bid process is there's this compliance matrix you have to fill out. Right. And it yeah. could be 180 lines long and you know, detailed, but in there is the one thing that's going to get you to win the deal. Absolutely. And you, and you have to find out what that one thing is, and, and most salespeople don't. And that's one of the things I always focus on. What is that one thing? Well, the way to find out is go back and look at the past deals, because that it's one thing on. is usually identified. Yeah, and it's really interesting. So you talk about those 180 lines or those big tenders that we all have to respond to on occasion, particularly for the larger or more strategic deals. We worked on a deal um, on one occasion for a vendor who, who had won a piece of business, but the initial feedback from the customer was that they very, very nearly lost it based on the poor quality of their tender response. And what they did is a classic mistake that a lot of businesses make, which is they didn't have a dedicated bid manager or a tender response uh, person in their business. So everyone cobbled together responses, you know, at nighttime and on the weekends and then threw them all back in and they got consolidated into one document and then flicked over the fence to the customer just before five o'clock on a Friday when the tender was due to be submitted. But unfortunately, what that does is that becomes the, your first impression to this prospective customer. And this organization had put a huge amount of time and effort into preparing the tender before they put it out into the world. And so they saw this very slipshod response and said to themselves, well, you know, this is essentially how we judge this organization. Sure. And, and luckily, one person saw just enough 
that was relevant and interesting to say, maybe we should take these guys through to the start line. And that was a 50, 60 million dollar piece of business that they almost lost based on essentially a very, very small thing, which was they had just poorly handled their initial bid. But but it's those, as you say, those very, very, you know, the one percenters, the two percenters, which can determine success or failure. Oh yeah, oh, that's a chapter in my latest book. <laughs> just amp up your sales. Is you know the one percent differences. You know yeah. that that's that's the winning margin. You know, exactly. I'll ask I'll ask clients. I'll say, okay, well, tell me how much did you win your last deal by? You know, was it five percent? Were you ten percent better? I'm not talking about price. How much better were you? Well, no one yeah. knows, right? <laughs> you, you you don't know. So you have to assume that it's only going to be one percent. So what's that one percent difference? And you said it could be first impressions. It could be. And the thing is, if you can, because you don't know for sure what 1% is, what you, what you need to do is actually lift your game across all those aspects. So exactly. how we engage in the first place, quality of our demos, how we do our discovery all the way through. We worked on one bid that was very, very interesting where it was apples for apples, which is obviously a term lots of customers use when they get down the wire and they've got two vendors. And the way that the uh, legal guys from one of the vendors engaged with this particular customer in terms of the best and final bid. So they were really helpful. And the vendor, or the customer would say, look, we're not really comfortable with this particular line item. And instead of saying, well, we're not going to change it, they'll say, well, look, let us go away. We'll have a think about it. We'll see if we can find a way to make that work for you. And they kept bringing that attitude of, you know, we'll, we'll find a way, we'll do our best. And occasionally when they couldn't move on a particular issue, the customer said, look, that's fine. We recognize you're working hard. The other vendor they were talking to and taking right through the process just put fault them on every detail mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the feedback feedback we had from the customer was we hadn't even signed on the dotted line yet and yet they were fighting us so we felt that this was this was likely to be the relationship right the way through you know the implementation and the go live and that concerned us so that was ultimately it was a cultural factor which made the final decision much easier for them to go with the company that had been actually really good through the commercial process as distinct from the other organization Again, not something we'd ever necessarily think about. And at that point, the salespeople were actually out of the process. It was now very much handed over to procurement, commercial, legal. Mm-hmm. And yet, ultimately, that was the deciding factor. So we've got to be we've got to be professional and squeaky clean at every step of the journey, not just the piece that we control. Yeah, I mean, people that listen to the show and read my books and my material know that my huge thing is responsiveness. Right? If you can master one skill as a salesperson, being responsive, to my mind, is the most important thing you can do. Yeah. In large part because it creates those positive first perceptions in the mind of the prospect. Oh, wow, these, this is who we want to do business with, especially compared to the other people. I could not agree more. And, and where I've arrived at in the last five years, Andy, from all of these conversations with customers, and this was a real leap for me from my time as a salesperson, is that actually no matter what you're selling, no matter what the brand on your business card, to a large degree, people aren't buying what you're selling anymore. They're buying you. So mm-hmm. you become the you become the personification of the product or the service or the brand that you represent. And if you do a good job in that respect, and there is a strong cultural fit, and they like you, and they trust you, and they see you as a, a credible authority, it, it, it's going to make a huge difference in terms of their ability to make a decision on the product or the, the service that you're selling. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And so one other point I'll make before I move on to another subject about your win review is is I I advocate doing something similar that that has a sort of a different component to it, but blended together, I think, becomes very effective. Because I think that in competitive situations, what happens is when the customer signs on the dotted line, in their mind, what they've bought is the best of every vendor that they've talked to. 
you know, they get confused to a certain degree, and it's, you know, an intense situation, and they start conflating and confusing the various things that they've heard. Yep. And so, doing the win review is a way for you to sort of do a reset to some degree about what the requirements were, why they're interested in talking to you, why they bought from you, the value they expect to receive, and their expectations about the product or service, so that when you actually start delivering, your expectations are all in alignment. I think that's a really interesting point, and I haven't heard it described that way before, but that makes a lot of sense because one of the biggest issues which often crops up in in, in a situation where you have had a win is the handover or the transition from the sales team to the delivery team. And uh, you can have built a great rapport and connection with a customer, and they, they really like you and trust you, and then the handover takes place. And if that's done poorly or it's not managed properly or you know the ball is dropped, you get this buyer's remorse. You get this, hang on a second. Well, you know, we thought they wanted to partner with us, but mm-hmm. all they're doing is flicking us to their technical guys and, and we're left out in the cold. And that can that can cause major issues. It can cause issues on the initial implementation, but also it can cause issues in terms of their likelihood of, um, you know, purchasing more in the future. Exactly. Exactly. The spe- expanding the footprint. So it's all of these little things, you know, that, that um, you know, it's nuanced sales um insight, but these things are critical to long-term sales success. Yeah, I, I call that the most important sales call. First sales call you make after they've signed the order. I like it. So, okay, next thing that, that we talk about from your book, which I found very interesting, is as everybody listens to the show, or not everybody, but I presume a large fraction of people listen to the show understand that we're coming into a world of sort of increased sales specialization. And, you know, you've got a quote in the book saying, talking about the strange fixation so many large businesses have on splitting their sales force into separate and autonomous groups to focus one on new business acquisition and the other on existing customer retention. So, <laughs> that certainly flies in the face of a lot of, of what's happening these days. So, you know, what do you see as the problem with this specialization? Look, uh- I see. I see quite a few different problems, actually. Um, but let me take it from the salesperson's perspective uh, first. So, it can be very, very. Yeah, it can be very, very taxing to be constantly focused on white space, blue sky, net new opportunity. You know, smashing the phones and you know having a million conversations. But also, it can be very one dimensional as well. Um, and I think. The, the value which salespeople bring to any of their interactions as much relates to their experience and the stories that they can share and the context that they can provide to customers. So if, if you're in a fairly one-dimensional role and doing you know, the same thing on an ongoing basis, it, it, you know, it becomes muscle memory. And often we, we can kind of unconsciously slip into behaving in a particular way. I think having a you know a more hybrid role, allowing some of your best salespeople not just to go out there and you know pound the pavement or you know make cold calls, but actually account manage, actually um, hone and develop their skills, create longer term relationships with customers. Uh, you know we work so hard to win new business, and often we put our best and our brightest people onto that because we think well that's the hardest thing to do. But the missed opportunity is expanding the relationship with our existing customers, um, sweating the asset of all the work that we've done in the past, understanding that you know, not all customers are created equal. So I would far rather have an existing customer than a net new customer. Your likelihood of um, sale is higher. Your likelihood of discount you know, is lower. The ability to get referrals is exponentially greater. So there's a whole lot of things which are in favor of actually uh, working more closely with our, um, with our existing customers, whilst obviously continuing to build net new prospects as well. So I think it's... Uh, 
it, it's too binary for me. It's too black and white. And, and I think it doesn't work that well for salespeople and it doesn't work that well for customers. So I think a, a more hybrid approach um, has always been what I've seen to be the, you know, the best approach. And, and I agree, it does fly in the face of a lot of the accepted wisdom, which is either you're a hunter or you're a farmer, either you're white space or you're install based. But, you know, that... The landscape has changed. The the way customers want to buy and interact with us has changed. And I think we need to reset on that if we're going to be able to meet them where they're at over the next three, five, ten years. Because I think a lot of salespeople, unfortunately, are starting to struggle and their careers are getting into this terrible debt spiral because they're not reinventing themselves and they're you know they're essentially. Um, uh, you know, they're they're a generic salesperson as distinct from having a level of specialization or depth of, of knowledge in a particular area. Well, I think that's really the key. I again, not to pump my own books, but yeah, I've got a chapter in there about specialists versus generalists. I mean, it is a world for specialists. I think the generalist in sales is an endangered species. I agree, especially yeah. in B two B complex sales, especially yeah. anything with a technical aspect to it. It's it's. Uh, yeah, what what's the value you're adding? And, and that's the critical thing. So, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged position in that I get to talk to the, the key decision makers from customers on a regular basis and ask them, post the decision, why did you make your decision? And, you know, it's interesting because when I set out to write um, uh, Rebirth of the Salesman, I thought it was going to be a book about win-loss analysis. But actually, it turned into a book about why do customers make the decisions they make and what does that mean for us as salespeople and sales leaders? How do we need to evolve to, you know, to have the characteristics and behaviors and skill sets that that are required to you know to deliver the things that are important to the customers based on what they've been telling us and it, and, and it really surprised me because I thought it would be you know well I thought it would be certain things but I didn't think it would be um, you know around the stories that they tell and cultural fit and their EQ and some of the other characteristics that actually come through in, in the book well I think that the one of the key points that you bring out and I this is I think this is something that you know, sales managers have to really think about because there's this bias that exists that says, yeah, you know, hunters are different than farmers. And we don't have hunters farm, we don't farmers. And as you say in the book, you know, you've yet to really understand that there's a real difference between the skills and characteristics and behavioral attributes between hunters and farmers. I mean, you think about it, and a good account manager, an excellent account manager, has to do the same thing an excellent hunter has to do, account exec has to do. I mean, they have to. Yeah. They have to build a rapport with the customer. They have to understand their business, what the requirements are, what their aspirations are. The discovery process is the same, as you point out in the book. You know, some of these things you get accelerated with an existing customer because you have that relationship formed already. Yeah. But fundamentally, the task is the same. I I, I completely agree, and I think. It, you know, it's it's naive to suggest that um, your best and your brightest should be the ones that are, are out there talking to net new prospects because really it's much easier to be a farmer. So let's put, you know, all of these farmers to work on our uh, install customer base. I mean, that's that's actually, you know, that's disparaging to your customer base and to those salespeople. But also it misses the point that 
you, your ability to grow your business very much will derive from your install customer base or it should do and how, how much they like you because ultimately most organizations don't do the big purchase as the first purchase. The first purchase is the opportunity to say, okay, well, let's give these guys a chance. Let's see what they can do. Um, you know, we hear about the land and expand strategy all of the time and a lot of companies do the land piece very well but very few do the expand piece well because as you say, the expand piece requires all of those skills the discovery, the relationship building, the, the ability to network and to create a framework within a much larger organization and understand how can we spread our message throughout this organization. That's a very, very complex thing to do. And it's not something which should be uh, just handed off to your tier two salespeople, because if, if you do, you're missing a massive opportunity. Well, and I think that it's, it's perhaps the wrong metaphor yes. or, to yeah. be using, which is you know, rather than land and expand, you should think about this concept of fit in and stand out. And so right. fit in means that you can come in with your system, integrate into the processes that they have that you're you know, necessarily going to be a part of, even though you may be disrupting and transforming some of them, but that you do such a good job at it that you're given the opportunity not only to expand that, but to do other things for them. Exactly. And that's, that's really the ideal situation. So to fit in and stand out, requires that you put your best people on it. It's not just to pick up the phone and call the customer and say, hey, do you have anybody else that wants to, to add seats? Right? And, uh, yeah, and unfortunately, we've all been on the receiving end of that where where you do get that call. And it's that's not value-adding. And so as a result, you know, you give them short shrift and you say, yeah, sorry, I'm not interested, and hang up the phone. And, and that's a missed opportunity because what they're doing is they're – um, undervaluing you as a customer in that scenario, if they're saying, yeah, you know, that's how we that's how we intend to treat you. Well, and I think also what the things we're seeing with some of the specialized sales roles, which yeah, you know, I don't disagree with with some of the need for some of it. Let's say in the SaaS business and so on, but this bifurcation with the customer success is, is yes, it seems like they're not really focusing on the fact that the opportunity with the long term opportunity with the customer is not just in expanding the number of seats for your existing solution. But it's understanding what the next big solution is the customer is going to need and how you can serve that. Yes, I agree. And that's that's the goal. It's not just you know go from 20 seats to 100 seats within this company and declare victory. It's no, what's their next 100-seat application that we can fill? Yeah, but Andy, you said a couple of the things in my book were contrary. Well, I think that, that uh, philosophy that you've just described there is contrary to the way a lot of B2B organizations work. If, if you go from 20 to 100 you know, it's job well done and you've done your job and no one's going to, um, you know, bat an eyelid. Well, that's because it's I all about, think, that's because the, the focus is, as you talked about, it's all on going and getting new greenfield customers. Correct. Yeah. Short term, uh, you know, what can we do this week, this month, this quarter as distinct from that, that longer term. And look, I, I recognize that, you know, there's, there's commercial imperatives that you require to hit certain metrics and goals quotas, etc. But I think the balance has shifted too far to that side. And so we're missing out on some of the customer-centric, strategic, longer-term conversations as a result. Yeah, so let's, let's dig into just a little bit here. Last part of this segment of the show is about what customers want. And you have some five points that you laid out that what customers want from us as sales professionals. And the first one is they want us to be professional. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sitting here with a wry smile on my face, um, Andy, because that was that was kind of one of the biggest shocks to me in in the last four or five years in talking to customers. How often, if you were to boil it down, 
a lack of professionalism was the key determining factor in an organization losing a piece of business. Now, lack of professionalism covers lots and lots of different areas. It could be, you know, poor preparation, could be poor tender response. It could be a lack of understanding, not doing the discovery properly, moving straight into pitching mode, lots of other things, not returning phone calls, not being responsive, as you said. It covers a lot of ground, but if you if you roll it together, they just weren't professional. And 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 by by association, we felt they were risky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in any environment where you've got products that you're selling that where you're in a competitive environment where there's some idea or perspective that the products you're selling are somewhat commoditized. Yeah. The first line of differentiation is you, the salesperson. Absolutely. And these first impressions that you're creating in the minds of the prospect are absolutely essential. So, and we'll get to the importance of that in number five. Is but number second one you said they want you to listen, which seems to be so hard these days for people to listen without being distracted. You know, it's interesting. I I don't even know if if customers consciously want you to listen. I think they're just making an assumption that you will, and then when you don't, it's really really obvious to them. Um, you, you know that kind of show up and throw up mentality. So it's it's no matter what your problem, no matter what your illness or or ailment is, I've got one bandage, I've got one solution. So that's going to be the solution, and that's just crazy. And as a result, customers are are switched off because if you're just looking for the first opportunity to start your pitch, um, you're, firstly you're missing out on a massive massive um, uh, opportunity to to find out what's important to them to do your discovery to you know to really scratch the surface but not only that you're just going to lose the room very very quickly because yeah we we've all got a very strong bullshit meter and we can we can feel when we're being pitched at or sold to rather than listened to and uh, and understood and and the invisible walls will go up and they'll nod and they'll smile and they'll say thanks very much and then your phone calls won't be returned because you haven't earned the right for your phone calls to be returned yeah but they didn't <laughs> <laughs> they didn't get a return on the time they invested in you. And that's correct. That is what you have to be thinking about. You know, every time they give you some time, anytime a customer invests time in you, what is the return you're giving them on that investment? Yep. So next thing he says they want you to be consistent, which I interpret as being they want you to be reliable. They do. And and you know, I think that's that goes to a whole lot of things. It goes to risk, it goes to um them because you, you think about it, right? <clears throat> in any in any B2B sales transaction, particularly a, a relatively large one, there's all of the benefit that will accrue to the business over time, but equally there's the benefit that will accrue to the to the stakeholder or internal sponsor who's supporting you and your bid and, and making a decision on that. So so they've got a huge amount of personal um, involvement in the decision and in the rollout and the go live and the uh, the value that's derived. So so they're looking at you not just will this solution work for us. They're saying how's this going to impact on me? How's it going to impact on my career? On my um, professional brand inside this organization. So your ability to be consistent, responsive, uh, relevant, helpful, um, it will all speak to giving them the comfort that, you know what, yeah, we can trust these guys. They're going to be good to work with. Even when there is a problem, that's okay because, you know, they'll still be around. They're not going to run for the hills. And these really can become decisive decision points for decision makers. Oh, well, lots of D's in there. Um, <laughs> so, very alliterative of me. So, but it, it is. And I, I have uh, a workshop that I give. That I, uh, the name of it is, you know, how do you win the sale before you win the order? Meaning, how do you get that mental, emotional commitment from the prospect prior to You're, them actually making a final decision? And, and these are the ways you do that. 
it, it, this is hearts and minds stuff, Andy. This is this is them feeling, you know, uh, that you're a safe pair of hands. And let's be honest, we we as human beings, we use the limbic part of our brain, we use the right feeling, emotional part of our brain, very often in decision making, and then we justify those decisions with the left brain, with the logic, with the reason, with the features and functions. And yet, as an industry, invariably we sell feature function left brain. So we're selling to the part of the brain that actually isn't necessarily making the decision. That emotive, uh, you know. Do I do I trust them? Do I feel comfortable with them? Exactly. Mm, I got a gut. Yeah, I got a gut feel. These guys aren't great, um, and yet we we don't focus on that. So that's that's you know that's a whole other conversation in itself. Yeah, but it's it's where you need to focus. I think if you really want to increase your win rate, focus on the emotional side. And you said sometimes emotions come into it. Actually, the research has found and and. Uh, there was an article I read not that long ago online about this, is that a researcher found this person that had had a, a brain injury that where they, there's a condition where they felt no emotion. Right. What they found out is they couldn't make any decision. Isn't so that interesting? How to, what to eat, what to wear, even the most basic decisions in life that we think, you know, just sort of logical, you got to eat to survive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Driven by emotion. Wow. Yeah, it makes it makes perfect sense. We're running a workshop over here in Australia at the moment, which is how to move from IQ to EQ in the sales process, because ultimately that's that's the the bigger driver. It's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting stuff. Very interesting. Okay, so last one was um, well, actually the fourth one is they want to invest time to really get to know them. I want you to invest time to really get to know them. Yeah, which you know we sort of covered a little bit, and then the last yes, one did. was. Which to me is is sort of the holy grail, and I write about this extensively. Is they want you to add value with every sales interaction. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's a little mantra which which I've adopted, and I think it's one that I share with the sales teams I work with, which is treat them like a customer before they ever become a customer. Um, and and because I think that does a couple of things. It speaks to adding value at every interaction, but it also speaks to honesty and. Uh, integrity when you're dealing with people. So if, if someone's not a customer, quite often we'd be inclined to maybe sugarcoat things or, you know, paper over the cracks or whatever. And uh, recognizing that you're still in a sales process. So you're, you're, it's not about exposing all the flaws of your, your product or your service, but it's just recognizing that they're, you know, they're a person, they're a human being. And if, if you are honest and you are authentic with them and you, you endeavor to add value in whatever way you can at each step of the journey, you're treating them like a customer, but they're asking themselves all the way through the process, what would these guys be like to work with? And so what you're doing is you're reinforcing, you know what would be good to work with? And everything that you do through that process reinforces that. And that's very, very um, profound in terms of its ability to influence them to make a decision. Absolutely. Well, I think two other points along with that is, is one we talked about a little bit, I talked about a little bit before, is that is uh, customers are making a, a judgment about the return on investment they're earning on the time they invest in you. And there's been research, yeah. research has been done, a guy won a Nobel Prize in part based on this, that you know, people make economic decisions about how to allocate their time, you know, their limited time. So if they're not getting a benefit from you, then you're going to stop getting time. And it speaks to the need of being able to add value. It does. You know those meetings, Annie, where you get where someone says, look, I, I've got half an hour. And then as you're adding value through that half an hour meeting, all of a sudden they've got another hour at, you know, at the back end because because they allocated half an hour to see if you could add some value. And once you started to challenge them and bring some new ideas to bear, they were able to free up time in their diary. Because because you're absolutely right. You know, there is an economic value to people's time. And, and so we have to earn the right to to have them give us more time. And we in, in exchange, we give them more value. And that's the, that's the exchange. There's a lovely quote 
from Jill Conrath, I think it was in one of her books, where she says, in a world of perceived product service parity, sellers are the key differentiators. And I firmly believe that, certainly in the B2B world, certainly in the world that we're moving to, as sellers, we have to be the key differentiator, because otherwise, it's an apples for apples comparison. Absolutely. Okay, great. So, and now we move to the segment of the show where I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And Kian, the first one is a hypothetical scenario. And in this hypothetical scenario, you've just been hired as the new vice president of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. CEO and the board of directors are anxious for things to get turned around. I know a sales turnaround doesn't happen in a day, but what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Okay. Uh, I think the first thing I'd do would be run a, a quick sales benchmarking exercise. So I'd be trying to benchmark my sales team to determine where they're at against kind of key metrics um, for, for sales success. And there's, there's a variety of good benchmarking tools out there that you can go through and you can do pretty quickly. Um, but it would be a quantitative and qualitative thing. So I would want to see... Um, I want to interview them. I want to sit down and talk to them, but I'd also want to see at a at a uh, qualitative level how they were performing against key metrics. So I think that's the first thing I do. The second thing I do, I think I'd probably go out and talk to the customers. Um, you know, I'd, I'd look at um, some customers that we maybe won recently and maybe some that we lost recently, and I'd go out and try and have a very just candid conversation with them and ask them to tell me, you know, what we're doing well, where we have some room for improvement, maybe get some insights about my competitors at the same time, and hopefully by um, by bringing those two uh, sets of information together, I'd have a better view on what we needed to do. Because otherwise, you know, I'd just be um, throwing throwing mud against the wall and hoping something stuck. And that's not a very good strategy long term. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great answer. So now here's some rapid fire questions. You can give one okay. word, one word answers, or you can elaborate if you wish. I mean, okay. You're Irish. You're a storyteller, right? So <laughs> that's right. So when you, Kian, are out selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? I think probably empathy or EQ, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I genuinely enjoy spending time with people. I, I like finding out about their stories. Um, sometimes maybe to my own detriment because I forget to talk about the thing that I was there to talk about because I'm more interested in what they're talking about. But but I, I, you know, my view is whether we business or not is not it's not irrelevant but it's not the primary factor whether we can you know find some rapport and connection is probably more important so so that would be yeah i think that's probably okay it. who's your sales role model oh that's a good question um it, well, it, the person who would probably, it's not someone you would have ever known or met. It's not someone who's high profile, but it, there was an individual who I worked with many years ago when I was starting out in sales. And he was just so disciplined and structured in his approach, but he also built such great relationships with customers that it was back in the days of fax machines where, you know, the, the biggest kind of issue was if the fax machine ran out of paper or ink in the lead up to, you know, the end of quarter. And this particular individual had such a strong rapport with his customers that he could pick up the phone and ring them and say, look, I'm, you know, I'm 150 grand away from kind of making my number for the year. And I know there was a few things we've been talking about doing over the next little while. So just entirely up to you if you felt it's appropriate. Um, maybe we can get something done before the end of this week. And he would always he would always get three, four or five extra orders off the back of that based purely on the strength of the relationships he developed with um, with his customers over a period of years. And that that just amazed me. And I think it's something I've always kept at the forefront of my mind. You know, that's that's people doing business with people. That's not businesses doing business with businesses, right. if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Get a distinction. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next question is, besides your own, what's one book you think every salesperson should read? 
Um, I'd, I'd probably say um, there's a book by Dan Pink uh, called To Sell as Human. Right. And I just, it just really, really blew my mind when I read it. Um, he talks about um, some of the negative perceptions of our industry and how they've been formed, but also how they're starting to disappear and just puts a whole new spin on, on um, the world of sales. So that was one that really, really stood out for me. Okay. So last question for you. What music's on your playlist these days? It is interesting. I'm listening to more and more music um, as I work these days, where in the past I used to, used to be pretty quiet. Um, Look, I say Irish, so so you will always be on there uh, somewhere. Um, but I'm also a fan of um, Simon Garfunkel. Um, so so sometimes when I'm trying to be creative, I'll I'll break out a bit of Simon Garfunkel. Simon Garfunkel, okay, very cool. Well, yeah, Ian, thank you very much for being on the show today, and tell folks how they can find out more about you. Um, well, so you can you can head to Amazon if you'd like to pick up a copy of the book uh, Rebirth of the Salesman. It became an Amazon number one bestseller uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was which was great. Um, you can head over to um, our website, which is trinityperspectives.com.au, or you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Trinity Perspect or on LinkedIn um, there. So um, yeah, always very very happy to just to chat to people who care about the same things that I care about in terms of the increasing the the perception of the sales industry because i think sales is the best job in the world and i think without it everything else grinds to a halt so um so i'm yeah i'm very passionate about uh, our industry clearly good well thank you again and remember friends make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success and one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate part of your daily routine whether you listen to commute in the gym or make it part of your morning sales meeting that way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Kean McLaughlin, joined us all the way from Sydney, Australia, who shared his expertise on how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 